Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. The episode show notes are at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this and all the other episodes. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. My newsletter goes out every week with updates about the podcast, my works in progress, and all sorts of cool sword stuff. You can unsubscribe at any time and there's never any spam. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to thank the people who make it possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast, and without them, I'd have quit long ago. Join us at patreon.com forward slash thesoardguy for behind-the-scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash thesoardguy. I'd also like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show, originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defence audiobook project. It was my birthday on November the 30th, so as has become traditional, I have a present for you. You can use the code GUYTURNS49 to get £5 off any of my books at swordschool.shop or 30% off any course at courses.swordschool.com. The code will work until the end of December 2022. That's GUYTURNS49, all caps, all one word, at swordschool.shop and courses.swordschool.com. Most podcasts have sponsors who offer discounts to the listeners and money to the host. In the sword world, most of the companies and organisations offering products or services to sword people have tiny profit margins and precious little cash. So I thought I'd introduce a non-sponsor segment to the show where I call out producers of good sword stuff and recommend them to my listeners without getting paid for it. Of course, if your company is in that tiny overlap of having margins that allow for discounts and budget for sponsoring podcasts, and I can wholeheartedly and without reservation recommend you to my listeners, that last one is probably the killer, drop me a line at guy at guywindsor.com and we can talk. The first non-sponsor to the show is the themightywichtenauer.com, which is a gigantic reference source for everything historical martial arts. It's run by Michael Chidester, whom I interviewed in episode 21, and includes scans, transcriptions, translations, and articles, and just keeps getting better every day. I use it almost daily, and it's a simply astonishing resource. You can find it at wichtenauer.com. That's W-I-K-T-E-N. A-U-E-R.com. Now, on with the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. Uh, this is Guy Windsor, also known as The Sword Guy. And I'm here today with Kaya Sadowski, who is co-owner of Valkyrie Martial Arts Assembly in Vancouver, a lovely school that I've taught at and I could not recommend more highly. And she is also the author of a book called Fear is the Mind Killer, which if you've been paying attention to things I've been saying since that book came out, you really ought to have read it by now because it's one of the best books I have ever read on the subject of martial arts. So without further ado, Kaya, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Guy. 
Well, it's nice to see you. Now, um, let's just start off by locating you. Whereabouts in the world are you? Uh, so I am in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Okay. And what's, what is it, what's it like there at the moment? Everybody locked uh, down? We've actually been um, opening up a little bit for the past two weeks. Okay. Um, so uh, BC is really lucky in that we currently have the lowest number of cases in Canada. And I think Excellent. some of the lowest in North America, which wow. means things are just starting to loosen up a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. We are looking at slowly starting to run private lessons at the school again in a couple of weeks and, and things are starting to move. So um, there's a lot of cautious optimism in the air right now. Excellent. Glad to hear it. Yeah. Um, so what made you want to start historical martial arts and how did that happen? I mean, I've always thought swords were super cool because how they could are. you not? Um, <laughs> Quite. You know, I've, I've, <laughs> I've got memories of, of uh, dressing up as a pirate for Halloween and, and swashbuckling and all of that stuff. Um, but I didn't realize that it was a thing that I could actually just go and do. Um, the, only, the only sort of um, sport or hobby I'd seen around swords was uh, Olympic fencing, and that just didn't really appeal to me. Uh, and then when I was in college, um, a good friend of mine took uh, an introductory class at a local school in Vancouver um, and, and, and just came one day and went, Kaya, did you know that you can do this thing? They have, they have real swords and you can learn to use them. <laughs> uh, and I signed up for a course a uh, little over a decade ago now and just never looked back. Lovely. And what are your main sort of weapons interests? Uh, so I primarily work with single-handed swords. Mm -hmm. Um, I started out working pretty much exclusively with rapier. These right. days I do a lot of, uh, a lot of the stuff that people kind of consider the wibbly boundary between rapier and side sword. Uh, I work a lot on Marazzo. I've been working on Godinho's two swords recently, which I mm -hmm. adore, uh, and then I work a lot with daggers and knives. Uh, <laughs> so pretty much anything that you can hold in one hand makes me happy. Okay. Tell us a bit more about Godino's two swords. Uh, what, what, what's so, the system like? Uh, so it feels a lot more... Um, the body mechanics are obviously different, but in terms of intention and application, it feels a lot more like uh, Montante or, or the mm -hmm. other really big two-handed swords right. uh, than it does feel like rapier or side sword or anything like that. Okay. Um, it's about crowd control and area control and taking up space uh, and oh, learning sorry, you said how to dominate sword. through continuous movement. Sorry? Right, right, sorry, you, you said two-handed sword. I did not. It's uh, two swords. Oh, it's two swords. Two single handed. Right. Yeah. Because, because what two you're describing sounds, sounds ex that, well, that's, that's what I thought I heard you say. But what you were describing was like, hang on, that's Montante. Did I miss here? Yeah. No. And it's okay. like, like tactically, it is Montante. Right. Uh, okay. it, it occupies kind of the same conceptual space. Uh, okay. But you're doing it with two hands moving independently. And that opens up a lot of interesting options. Oh, it would. Um, so yeah, it is super fun. <laughs> Godino, when was he writing? 
Uh, he is, I'm so bad at dates, but I'm going to say late 16th century. Okay. Um, Italian? He's... Spanish? Portuguese? <sighs> Spanish slash Portuguese? <laughs> okay. Iberian. Let's say Iberian. Um, Should we say Iberian? Iberian yeah, let us word. say Iberian because it lets us be the most accurate. Um, yes, okay. He writes primarily in Spanish. He does talk about Portuguese okay. as well. Uh, and he's sort of considered a precursor to the Destreza tradition. Uh, okay. and But he's I doing different stuff. <laughs> right. Um, am I right to assume that you're working from a translation? Yes. Okay. Uh, so who 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 else is doing this, and and whose whose work are you are you building on? Uh, so the translation that I am working from. Do do do. Let me pull it up to make sure that I am not mangling anybody's name. Uh, the translation I'm working from is Tim Rivera's. Okay. Yeah. Um, which was a, a collaborative project with Steve Hick, Eric Myers, Manuel Valle, and Jamie Girona. Um, Excellent. And uh, in terms of interpretation, we started working on mm -hmm. this stuff at Valkyrie kind of as a group project. And then I went off on my own a bit, especially during, uh, during the pandemic, uh, when right. independent study became a lot more kind of viable than, than working in groups. Well, it's the only thing um, you can do, isn't it? Yeah. And, uh, and a number of my private students have sort of independently taken an interest in Godinho. Okay. Uh, I started working on him a bit, uh, with a pair of students I have down in Minnesota who I've been mm -hmm. working with for about a year and a half. Uh, one of my local Vancouver students took an interest uh, okay. And then recently I've been working with Christian Bootner, who is out on the East Coast of the U.S. and who's okay. worked a bunch on Godinho's Montante, uh, but had not worked with the Two Swords. Um, right. And so we've been doing a combination of like teaching and kind of collaborative study and interpretation. Okay. Uh, and uh, Dan Halliday in New York has has gotten involved as well. Cool. Uh, oh, sorry, how, how do you model the crowd stuff? That wrong. <laughs> sorry? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, mu you mustn't confuse New York with New Jersey. They are not the same places. Um, okay, uh, yeah, how do you model the sort of the defense against the crowd? How, how, do you, how do you get those sorts of scenarios modeled so that you can sort of test the interpretation? Uh, so... Luckily, with a lot of the group stuff, I had an opportunity to play with that in person before the school closed. Sure. Uh, and we would just build straight up scenarios. Um, okay. For for safety reasons, for a number of those, um, we because it's a lot of it is is working against people who are unarmored. You don't want to just put people in a fuck ton of armor that completely limits their ability to move and then bang them sure. with steel swords. Yeah. yeah uh, sure. So. We would uh, we would modify equipment to use like uh, sticks or um, right. boffers or, or other things mm -hmm. that were a little bit more forgiving if they actually hit people. Yep. Um, but we we ran it as scenarios. We would have one person doing uh, Godinho's rule that was intended for a specific context. So uh, a rule is like a, sorry a rule just just for the um, listeners who may not be familiar with this stuff, a rule, one of Godina's rules is like a sequence of movements, yes? Yeah, so basically okay. um, his his two-sword section is structured into 12 rules, 
mm-hmm. uh, each of which covers a specific scenario. So right. he'll say, for example, all right, so you're in a street. Uh, the street is wide enough that you can throw horizontal cuts without hitting anything, but not so wide that people can move past you as you're doing that. And right. you're dealing with p- people who are in front of you. Or oh, I love, I love that the, way of measuring the width of a street, by the way. That's, that is the only way streets should be measured. Right? Is, is like, well, can I hit the walls? Yes. Um, and, and, and he's sort of got three widths of street, which are very wide, not too wide, and narrow. Right. And you, and you work within those. Or, uh, or one, of his, one of his other rules is, okay, so you've got to get a lady out of a crowd. Okay. And she's behind you. And you've got to walk okay. her through it. And then the next rule that comes immediately afterwards is, whoops, you got surrounded and now she has to sit down. Oh, Um, cool. Okay. Yeah. So he's... uh, So you've got to do all your sword swinging without decapitating the lady. Correct. Yes. Excellent. (laughs) Um, So the way that his text is structured actually lends itself really well to scenario work because he's kind of pre-built those. He tells you exactly what's going on around you and what situation you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. And that makes it very easy to build appropriate situations for pressure testing. Excellent. Yes, it would do. Yeah. Um, And one of the things that's been happening uh, currently is that as I've been working on this with more people and as I've been really challenging myself to be clear and precise in my interpretation Mm -hmm. uh, some of my ideas around the movements have changed Uh, and so it's going to be really neat to take kind of the the modifications that I've been making during this time of of individual study and once I can interact with groups of people again doing a second round of pressure testing and seeing if anything's changed there yes of course because the interpretation doesn't work until it's actually you know put into practice of course yeah right now Right now, there's a lot of stuff that's been shifting in terms of body mechanics and fluidity mm-hmm. and the ability to continue moving, which you can practice yep. solo. Uh, yep. But obviously, none of that matters if it doesn't work against other people. Precisely. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so do you have sort of a plan for how you're going to to test the new interpretations that you've come up with working alone? Oh, boy. Feel free to geek out. Okay. The people it's hard, isn't it? Um, are sword people. So so you can geek yeah. out as much as you like, as deep as you like. We will not get bored. Fair. I mean, um, honestly, what I've been doing currently is grabbing people who are experienced sword fighters who know mm-hmm. how to move well with a weapon. I'm kind of focusing on folks who have good mechanics and a good sense of flow and understand mm-hmm. kind of how fluidity is supposed to work in a fight. Yep. Um, and I'm throwing this material at them. Right. And, okay. and, and sort of not just feeding them my interpretation wholesale, um, mm-hmm. but having them kind of, kind of work through it with me and seeing if we arrive at similar conclusions. Okay. Um, and actually one of the really interesting things that I've been doing recently in my classes because uh, Valkyrie is still is still teaching. We are running uh, classes six days a week online. Excellent. Uh, and so I'm I'm really fortunate in that on Tuesday nights I have kind of a regular cohort of students that I can uh, throw things at um, right. and sort of see what happens. Uh, and an independent uh, study and independent experimentation is something that's been very. <laughs> Uh, a very kind of optimal choice for us right now. Obviously. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
So one of the things that I've been doing with Godinho specifically that's been a lot of fun uh, is I'll bring him to class and I'll say, right, here are a couple of basic movement principles within this system. This is how he understands footwork. This is how he understands uh, cuts and how your sword should travel. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is how he talks about posture and movement. Uh, And I kind of give people the big picture of um, how Godinho moves and what Godinho should feel like. Uh, And we maybe work through a basic movement pattern so that people can develop an internal sense of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then what I'll do is I'll take one of the sequences of, of, of movement in in one of the rules that I'm working on, especially one of the the trickier ones or one of the weirder interpretations. Um, And I'll start to throw it at students in pieces. Um, So for example, there's one of them, uh, rule four, that involves linking together two very different kinds of cuts. Uh, And the transition between them is weird and tricky. And when I was working on it with Dan and Christian, it took us like a week to make any sense of it. and and this is with checking it against uh, interpretations that other people have done that are out there. Um, for example, Tom Pui did a, a video series on Godinho's Two Swords that's now a few years old. Okay. Um, but it's a useful kind of check as like, hey, how are other people doing this? Absolutely. Um, but with this rule, um, you start with throwing cuts on one side of the body and then you transition to sort of a pair of like scissor cuts right down the center and okay. then move to the other side. Um, and what I did with the students was I didn't tell them what the pattern was, but I had them go, all right, both of your swords are on one side of your body and they need to move to the other side. And one of your cuts is going to be a reverso. So a cut coming from your backhand side. Uh, and one of your cuts is, go- or sorry, uh, out of S is the, yeah. the Spanish version. I mix up my Spanish and Italian a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and your other cut is going to be uh, a tayo or a or a forehand cut. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've basically got three options for getting yourself efficiently to the other side. You can begin with the reverse and follow with the tayo. You can begin with the tayo and follow with the reverse. Or you can kind of throw them both at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had the students go and play with that and tell me and, and work out on their own which they liked better and why. Okay. And, ah. and come to their own conclusions about what made the most sense mechanically and tactically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we played with, okay, so what if your swords are now on opposite sides of your body? You've got one on your left and one on your right. Uh, and if you want to swap sides, you can either throw, you can either start with your arms uncrossed and throw two forehands, two tayos, so they end up yeah. crossed. Or you can start with them crossed and throw two reverses to uncross them. Again, go play with that. Um, And then once everybody had developed preferences, we played with transitioning between the two. Um, And and this was working with a group of, I think I had four or five students that day, and we worked on it for about an hour. And it was all just go figure these things out and see what makes the most sense for your body. And then we would kind of do show and tell and talk about why we were making the choices we we were. And some people would talk about tactics and how moving in a certain way uh, would let them maintain coverage in front of them with both swords rather than creating gaps. 
Uh, and some people talked about mechanics and how moving a certain way would allow them to change direction more easily uh, or to use their momentum more effectively to throw cuts more smoothly or to throw faster and sharper cuts. Um, and the thing that was really awesome for me was that everybody had different reasons for why they liked what they liked, yep. but they ultimately came to very similar conclusions about what worked best. Interesting. Um, and so we ended up coming up with this organic consensus uh, that also happened to be a very good fit for um, what's in Godinho and helped kind of refine and strengthen my own interpretation and ended up running on very parallel lines to it. That's um, interesting. Yeah, it's so a good process. Yeah, so that's kind of one of the ways that I'm testing things is, okay, mm -hmm. if people are using good mechanics and good tactical thinking, are they going to come up with something broadly similar to what I'm doing under the same conditions? Yeah, uh, And if so, that's... That is one decent test uh, that does not yet require that I immediately go out and fight 10 other people because obviously that's a problem in, in, in these times. <laughs> yes, particularly in lockdown. But, but that, yeah, time will, so. that time will come. That time absolutely oh, yeah. will come. And now I've, I've seen some of your classes and particularly your self-defense oriented classes. And I've been struck by how you managed to have a class with a pretty high level of force and a pretty low level of equipment, and yet the whole thing is pretty safe. Um, so I'd be interested in your thoughts on protective equipment generally, perhaps specifically in the context of Godino's Two Swords, um, however you want to take the question. Tell me about equipment. Protective equipment. Tell you about equipment. Hmm. Um, so... My philosophy on protective equipment in general uh, is that it is a last line of defense. It is an important piece of the puzzle that allows us to prevent serious injury when the other safety guidelines or tools that we have mm -hmm. in place have failed. Um, so it's super important. It can definitely mean the difference between life and death or... Uh, continued function and catastrophic injury, especially when things like eyeballs are concerned. Sure. Um, but it's not the first thing that I want to rely on. Um, I, I don't want my students ever going into a scenario and, uh, or, or, a, or a lesson and thinking that their equipment is the only thing that is keeping them safe. Yes, or even um, wearing equipment makes them safe. Because pe people right, get killed yeah. in armor all the... You know, in the Middle Ages, people were being yeah. killed in full plate armor. Yeah. Equipment uh, equipment helps if you do an oops. <laughs> yeah. It's not it's not perfect. It's not foolproof, but it's an extra layer of protection. Um, but for me, the most important uh, safety tool and the one that I will always emphasize in my classes is uh, trust. And the relationship between the people involved in the exercise. Um, mm -hmm. The fact that there needs to be an ethic of care in our training. That your job as a training partner is to make sure that you and the person are working with A, learn, and B, walk away safely at the end of whatever it is that you've been doing. 
I, I would switch those uh, around. I'd put the yeah, learn fair. second. Uh, that was not necessarily <laughs> priority order. Um, okay. You know, although the thing is, actually, no, I'm going to argue with you on that a little bit. Okay, go ahead. Uh, in the sense that if our only priority is everybody walking away safely, why the hell are we training martial arts? Yeah, okay. So that, yeah. Um, yeah. We're here to learn. We accept that there is an inherent level of risk in that. Mm -hmm. um, and that everything we're doing is for the sake of the learning. But my God, do we want to walk away at the end? Okay. So, so no, I'm comfortable with my order. Fine. <laughs> um, but... Uh, so what, what do you guys use, equipment-wise? Uh, Gear-wise? Yeah. Are we... Um, it's very situational. For something like Godinho's Two Swords, because you've got... Uh, because it's a system that relies a lot on the power generation that comes from continuous movement, yep. uh, and you get a lot of, like, full-body stuff going into things, so you have swords yep. that can really hit, like, a brick. Um. If I'm sending people in against that in kind of a pressure testing context, I'm going to make sure absolutely that they have rigid throat and back of neck protection. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to make sure that they've got a full face mask and something protecting the back of their head mm -hmm. uh, because those are all places you do not want to oops into. Yeah. Yep. Um, and I would probably be looking at hard protection for, uh, for the joints, for the knees and the elbows. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the hands, because those are all things that if you whack them hard with a sword are just going to break. Yep. Um, and if people wanted to throw on more, if they wanted to, for example, make sure that they had rib and, and sternum protection, uh, that would be that would be a thing that they could absolutely do. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of my baseline there. Okay. Um, I don't so, want people in in anything that really affects their ability to move in with something like uh, like two swords. A really big part of its effectiveness is the fact that mm -hmm. it's scary. Like, Ooh, yes. the reason it works, the reason that it takes up an enormous amount of space is that you're effectively staring at this helicopter of doom. Yeah. And there should be an enormous internal hesitation to actually step into that. Uh, and that means that in order to test it effectively, you need people lightly armored enough that getting hit sucks. Okay. It shouldn't injure them, mm -hmm. but it should but, but be... You can't just shrug it off. Yeah. No, absolutely. Or, or ignore it. Uh, yeah. If, you know, yeah, if you put somebody in the kind of armor that a lot of folks wear for longsword tournaments, they could probably walk right in. Um, and that's not a realistic representation of the context that... Uh, that this way of fighting was intended for. So you're not mm -hmm. actually going to get an interesting result. Yeah, sure. Um, so you want people, you want people scared of the swords. <laughs> Absolutely. You want people aware of the fact that if they get touched, it's going to be real bad news. Yeah. Um, but you still want them to have the freedom to problem solve within that without immediately risking catastrophic injury. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Now, pretty much everyone I've talked to about equipment has pet peeves. Uh, feel free to vent. All right. This is, this is my real big one. This is my hobby horse when it comes to equipment. I've got two, actually. Okay, go for it. Uh, one of them is primarily a safety concern, and one of them is primarily a technique and ability to fight concern. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so the safety one is uh, it appalls me how many people think that fencing masks are sufficient for preventing concussion. <laughs> yes, you and me both. And who specifically, uh, or who think that concussion is not a substantial enough risk in fencing to be concerned about. Right, um, yes. And and I think this is a particular problem in in rapier and in combat with single-handed weapons or weapons that are considered lighter than long swords. Um, Interesting. And, uh, and a misunderstanding you're the first person, of... Everyone, everyone talks about long sword in the context of concussion, but you're the first person who's brought up rapier. Right, please, and here's the please, thing, is that everybody, everybody talks about long sword because they're like, well, yeah, you're basically swinging a giant crowbar at somebody's head. That's bad. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if we understand the mechanics of concussion, one of the worst things that you can do in order to cause one is ped somebody, yeah. is hit somebody with a solid thrust high up on their face and drive their, drive their head backwards, right. especially if you add any rotation to that impact. Yep. Um, Which is pretty much a description a of a rapier thrust. <laughs> that's, that's, exactly. That is what rapier does, yes. Exactly. Rapier thrusts to the face. It loves thrusting to the face. Thrusting to right. the face is great. It's the core um, of rapier. Not only that, yeah, not only that, but the profiled stance that most systems uh, encourage one to fight in mm -hmm. means that when you do get hit in the face, there's almost certainly going to be rotation happening as well. Yep. Because you're not square onto your opponent. Your head is already turned, and when it gets hit, it's going to turn more yeah yeah so there is a massive massive risk of concussion in rapier mm -hmm. and we don't talk about it because we're using light fun fluffy weapons or at least that's the perception <laughs> no one who's ever picked up my working rapier has called it fluffy fair <laughs> it's just like you know or, or even or but, even if, if you handle like a, a historical rapier like my i'm talking about my sharp rapier at the moment yeah it's it's a rigid iron bar I mean, it's it's got right. no flex in it at all. I mean, it's 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 springy enough that if you hit really really hard, it's not going to shatter. It's going to bend a little bit, but it is not a flexible weapon. And even when you go to a fencing right. weapon like my 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 training sword, it's I have a very light and beautiful um, training rapier, but there's a kilo of mass just in the sword, and if I do it right, I'm putting mm -hmm. maybe fifty kilos of mine behind it too. And then it takes time for that steel to bend. Exactly. Um, I've been I've been concussed by a rapier in a tournament. I bet. It was it was a minor concussion, um, but it definitely happened. I I know the local SCA has a long history of people getting concussed so badly mm -hmm. they stopped fighting permanently because of sure. the brain damage they suffered. Right. Um, and it's just not something that comes up enough, I think, in the HEMA community. Um, and when it does get talked about, people are like, well, you should put a rugby scrum cap under your fencing mask and that will stop things. That's totally going to help. <laughs> like, yeah, it, totally. That, that's why it you know, just boxing, demonstrates boxing a gloves complete... Makes lack of understanding of the mechanics because boxing gloves prevented all the concussions exactly. right totally prevented them that's why no boxers ever have concussions ever right yeah totally <laughs> um, um, so how would you solve it do you have a oh. you know if if money was no object and you had all the scientists in the world working on it 
what what would you want to see them come up with? This is a real hard one for me, Guy. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, you know, thinking about this as a technological problem because we know that one of the the best ways of preventing that particular kind of pezzing effect is to basically stabilize the neck, sure. is to make it so that the head can't go back. Um, I don't know how you do that and still allow for the kind of movement that is integral to rapier fighting. Yeah. I mean, some sort of helmet that is sort of anchored to the shoulders might do it, but you still, but it, then it, you would have difficulty moving. Exactly, and that's my, and that's the thing is, is we end up sacrificing. Um, How about this? You know, you know, uh, like a diving suit. If you had a like a perspex ball, so you could see all round, and it was anchored right. on your shoulders like a diving helmet, so you could turn your head this way and that inside it but the rapier would hit this ball. Right, and wouldn't... Maybe, yeah. Um, or or honestly, um, heading in the other direction and looking at swords and seeing if there are ways that we can, we can make them flex more and sooner on impact. Um, but then, you but then the we kind of problem. run into doing rapier with a fencing foil and we have the wobble problem. Yeah. Um, this is the thing is I, I honestly don't think there is an ideal technological solution. Um, I think we're stuck with... With human solutions on the one hand that involve things like managing force and managing mm-hmm. distance and fighting in ways that mean that the amount of times you get hit with enough force to potentially concuss somebody is minimized. Right. Um, and and also just acknowledging that this is a big danger of what we do and that like in boxing, uh, when you when you take up this art and when you fight with intensity, that is a risk that you are taking and have people come into it with informed consent. Because yeah. I think a really big thing that happens is that people come into this without understanding the risks. Yeah, um, very true. And it gets sold to them as a fun and safe way to get in shape. Uh, and I don't think that's honest. Yeah. Uh, and Fair I think point. at a certain point we have to recognize that like, yeah, no, this is something that's going to hurt you and is probably going to fuck you up a little bit. Is that a trade-off you're willing to make? And if mm-hmm. not... Maybe don't spar at full speed. Don't yeah, or, definitely or, don't get involved in tournaments. And do it you know? very occasionally. Or do yeah, it very or occasionally. do it. Uh, train for it uh, the way that the way that boxers or the MMA fighters do, where training at full intensity is less than ten percent of what you do in your practice. Sure. You know, yeah, it's, the, it's, less than, it's less than 1% of what I do in my practice because, you know, I'm 46 and I've been doing this for like 20 odd years and yeah, I've only got one head. Exactly. I've, um, because of my long and storied history in many extreme sports and also an extremely clumsy childhood, I have had five or six concussions in my life. That's more than enough. I should not have more. No. Uh, I don't compete anymore. Uh, even though I'm young and fit enough to still do so because that risk is, is one that's unacceptable to me. 
Uh, and when I spar, I spar with people I trust to do so with control and with my health at the forefront of their minds. And I don't play at full intensity and full speed uh, very often at all. Yep. Fair. Um, so that, that was one um, uh, equipment trigger. You said you had two. What's the other? Oh, God, everybody's gloves are too bulky, and as a result, ah! they don't know how to hold their swords. There's a reason we're friends, Kaya. <laughs> we oh, my experience. God. Yeah. <laughs> the, and especially, oh, um, I have a particular pet peeve uh-huh. about, because, like, long swords, broken fingers, whatever. You guys figure that shit out. I'm not a long sword person. But right. the number of people who use rapiers and rapier-like swords, some of which have a bloody cup hilt, and will still wear these massive, bulky, padded gloves underneath okay. that mean that the only thing they can really do is hold their sword in a bloody fist. Yep. Uh, and it completely destroys their ability to use the weapon as it's intended. Yep. Uh, and actually creates more safety problems than it solves. Well, there you uh, go with because the... Because yeah. there's no softness in their movement. There's no ability to control their impact. Right. Uh, there's no it finesse in the, the handling. Problem. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so you end up with like, yeah, maybe your fingers are a little bit better protected, but honestly, that's a thing that your guard should be bloody doing anyway. Uh, yeah. And the side effect is that you're hitting people way harder than they should ever be hit. And your yeah. fighting's ugly. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, and I'm going to throw in that aesthetic complaint because it matters. Like, yes, who the definitely. hell is doing Marazzo because it's smashy and efficient rather than because it looks fucking sexy? <laughs> well, you said it. I did. I did, okay. and I stand by it. No, no, Most I... Most of I, what I practice is pretty as hell, and it should be. I, I could not agree more. Um, uh, and that's an integral part of authenticity and fidelity to the historical sources that we are yeah. throwing out the window. Yeah, I mean, I've, like, when I'm fencing... Rapier, if I have, if I'm intending to use my left hand to parry, I'll have a steel gauntlet on my left hand, but I'll just ever, right. I only ever use just a fencing glove on my right. And, you know, yeah. I've, I've, I once got wrapped on a fingernail in a painful manner when fencing rapier, I think once. Yeah. But, you know. I've been, yeah, I have been fencing in leather unpadded motorcycle gloves for 10 years. Right. The only hand injury that I have ever sustained uh, was the fairly exciting loss of a fingernail on my mm-hmm. left thumb, which happened during a machete lesson. Right. Okay. And like, machetes don't have a guard. You're going to get hit yeah. in the hands. Yeah. And you're a lefty, uh, right? And I'm a lefty, so it was my dominant yeah. hand. Yeah. Um, I have... I have never once had anything happen to my hand, my sword hand while fencing, that has made me think, gosh, I need heavier gloves. Not so once. I, 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 I've had a finger broken twice. And once was because I've been doing saber with a closed hilt, you know, kind of a complex hilt um, covering the hand. And I was mm-hmm. sparring. This is like 25 years ago. We were children. Um, with a single-handed sword that had an open guard, 
so nothing protecting the fingers. And I tried to do a kind of classical saber fencing parry, lifting the sword above my head. And I parried with my knuckles and something cracked. And that was just yep. me being stupid. Um, <laughs> basically thinking the guard was there when it wasn't. And the other time, um, I got a finger broken on my left hand because I was fencing with a long sword. And I just bought a brand new pair of steel gauntlets. And I was fencing my friend and I parried and I parried his sword with my finger and my steel gauntlets were in my fencing bag two meters away not oh no <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so you know it, it, it does happen so the gloves only work if you wear them let this be a yes definitely <laughs> <laughs> there are no um, talismanic protections yeah um, um okay so so your, your pet peeves on protection are uh, concussion particularly in rapier and inadequate hand protection or, or rather excessive hand protection in some cases um, and lack of sensitivity and flexibility correct yes yeah okay that's that's yeah we we're basically the same person in, in this discussion so i think we should probably move on <laughs> otherwise it's just going to be looking like you know it's going to be bouncing back and forth between mirrors so we need to find we need to find something else that you disagree with me on kaya um, oh, good. Okay. How about this one? I, this is not going to generate any disagreement, I don't think. But um, what has been your proudest moment in historical martial arts? My proudest moment? Yeah. Oh. Um. I've had a couple in the past year that are all they're all kind of mirrors of each other. They're all little instances of the same thing. Okay. So I'm going to kind of lump them together. Okay. Um, it's when somebody has uh, reached out to me, um, mm -hmm. a colleague, uh, somebody else who, who teaches martial arts, uh, HEMA specifically, um, and has told me that, they read my book mm -hmm. and they implemented some of the culture changes that it suggests mm -hmm. and their school got better. I can <laughs> and, imagine. And specifically um, the one that's gotten me, I think the one that got me the most that, that absolutely brought me to tears um, was a colleague in the U.S. Uh, who's teaching down in Texas um, who told me that every time he implemented one of the things that I suggested in my book, his school became more like what he'd always wanted and didn't know he needed. Fabulous. That it was helping him teach and train the way that made the most sense for him and the way that brought him joy and fulfillment. Uh, and that's more than I could have ever hoped for, you know? Yeah, well, I've been telling it's, everybody, I wish you wrote the bloody thing 20 years ago, because then, you know, my own school would have turned out closer to what I had in mind. <laughs> I still... Um, yeah, it still just makes my brain shut down when I hear things like that. It matters so, so much. And 
I didn't let myself dare to hope that it would have this impact. Well, you're not supposed to write a book like that your first time out, Kaya. You're supposed to build up to it. And after about 15 books, you produce something like that. (laughs) Uh, Do you know how much pressure that puts on writing a second book? None. Because the thing is, it doesn't matter what you do. You can't can't expect to top it. So you're free to, you know, do whatever you want. Uh, That's a good point. And that's the conclusion that I've ultimately come to is that... I don't have to worry about everything I do being revolutionary because that's an unreasonable expectation to have. And now I can go write weird niche stuff that nobody else cares about. (laughs) Precisely. So what are you working on at the moment? Uh, I am working on uh, a historical, uh, an actual like historical interpretation book, sort of. Wow. The way that I do things. Yeah. I am writing specifically on that weird last bit of Morazzo where mm-hmm. he talks about self-defense against the dagger. Okay, yeah, I am familiar uh, with Because it's, yeah, it is a funny little self-contained section of the text that behaves rather differently from the rest of it. Yep. Um, and it's also a really interesting case study in how you build an effective and very simple self-defense approach. Um, that you can boil down to a very small number of principles. And when you look at the 22 individual plays that he's actually got in that section, Mm -hmm. there's sort of just three things applied in different contexts. Okay. What are those three things? Uh, Three basic kinds of movement. You drive right through somebody's center of gravity and you knock them over. Right. You make contact with them and you pivot them or yourself. So you, you turn their force against them kind of Aikido mm-hmm. style yeah. uh, or you isolate a joint and you break or lock it for a disarm. Okay. And that's a pretty complete martial arts system right there. It is. Uh, and, and my contention with this and, and the thing that I want to use the book to show is that if you understand the decision-making model that's at play in a system and you understand the basic mechanical principles that it's using, which in, in, in this case are those three techniques, yep. you can reconstruct all of its individual techniques on the fly. And you can do so without having to memorize them. You can do so using them as a means of exploring and refining your approach rather mm-hmm. than as a set of things that you need to remember in order to do it right. Um, mm. So it's going to be an exploration of training practices and pedagogy via this one specific interpretation of a very small little system. It sounds fascinating. Uh, do you have any timeline for when the book might be out? Uh, so... Originally, my intention was to have it done by the end of this year. Uh Um, I would still like that to be the case, but I don't know. I don't know if that's going to happen. I was stalled on it for a good like seven months where I just didn't write anything at all. uh, Kaya, you weren't stalled. Excuse me. I just have to correct on this one. You were letting it just state in your brain (laughs) coming to a state of readiness to be put down. You're right. Oh, it's so good talking to a fellow writer. <laughs> it was never stalled. I'm uh, never thinking. Yeah, it was. It was proofing like sourdough. Right. Um, exactly. Uh, anyway, I've started writing again. 
Uh, and I know what I want now and I have a clear outline and it's fun and it's exciting. Um, I think it is reasonable to say that it will be out in the first half of 2021. Okay. Yeah. For sure. I have a suggestion. One writer to another. Mm. Finish, finish the book, get it through the second draft, and then think about when you're going to publish it. That's why. Yeah, I that's do. a good call. It's because, because that, you know, then I can say, okay, you know, you're definitely going to have the book beginning of May. I mean, I could have sent people the book in February and it would have been okay. It just had a couple of editorial passes to go through and be sent into layout and that was done. My last book. Right. right. But, but, you know, I wasn't even discussing when it might be out until it was done. Cause I had no idea. I might, I might have needed to rest it for another six months before it was, you know, before it had finished proving. Right. Like, like Saturday. Yeah. So I think I like to set myself vague deadlines uh, sure. as a way of keeping myself accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, yeah, first half of 2021, <laughs> I should be on okay. track for that is, is useful for me. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I need to be more careful about what I publicly commit to. I think <laughs> I definitely, I, I have learned that over the past year. Okay. Yeah, so you can publicly commit to trying to probably have it ready by. Correct. Yes. Fine. That, that's fair. Well, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to reading it whenever it comes out, um, whether Thank that's you. next year or, or whenever. Um, okay, so what is the best idea you've never acted on? Oh, God. This is honestly a really hard question. Well, I mean, three um, years ago, we could have said writing a book. But yeah, right. I don't it, have that so. one anymore. Um, my honest-to-God problem as, as, a, as a martial artist and as any kind of a creative person is that I am much more a person of action than of ideas. Okay. <laughs> so if I... I am slow to come up with ideas. They take a lot of time and they are few and far between. So when I get one, I usually have to act on it immediately. Um, okay, interesting. Like what? And so I don't know. Uh, like the book. Okay. Like, uh, like um, starting to do work on... Uh, on scenario work and use of force and stress mm-hmm. and all of that and bringing it into the HEMA community. The second I decided anything like that was a good idea, I just started doing it. And I often right. start doing things before I'm even sure something's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, this is part of why I like working in groups and in collaborative communities is that I often mm-hmm. surround myself with people who have better ideas than I do and become the person who goes out and does them. Right. Uh, well, with credit, of course. Of course. <laughs> there's, there's, there's so much, um, there's so many ideas out there. It's the execution that is everything. Yeah. So I, I don't know that I have ideas sitting around that I haven't used because I don't know that I have very many ideas. <laughs> wow. Well, that, that's a really good balance to have, actually. 
<laughs> so, okay. so my answer is, I don't think there is one. Give me ideas, please. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, you heard it here, people. Uh, so listeners, if you have ideas for things you think Kaya should be doing, she has just invited you to send them in. Okay. Um, my last question. Yes. Somebody gives you a million dollars. Let's say pounds, right? Which is like 2,000 Canadian. Um, oh, yeah, that's real nice. Sorry, 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 like two, <laughs> sorry two million Canadian dollars to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide. How would you spend that money? I would seek out uh, clubs or or organizations um, around the world. Try to you know mm-hmm. find as many like one in as many cities and hubs as I as I can afford, I would find clubs that are starting to do really good, really interesting work that are run by people who have great ideas, but don't necessarily have a voice or resources. Mm -hmm. And I would make sure that they have the space and the tools to actually grow. Okay. Because my, my experience, um, with Valkyrie and what we've done in, in our local community is that, our ability to to learn and to train and to make change absolutely expanded exponentially once we got a space. Oh God, yes. Oh yeah. Once I've, we I've... got the stability to just train from a place. Yep. And to grow a community in a place. Yep. Um, and there are so many people that are doing amazing work in HEMA. That mm-hmm. nobody ever hears from and sure. that nobody ever gets to see the fruits of because mm-hmm. it's like them and two other people training in a park and right. and they don't have the continuity that space allows and they don't have the platform that a space gives them. Um, and I want to find those people and I want to give them a home and go here. You have you have somewhere to train rent free for the next year or two build something with it. Wow. That's a very good use of the money. I mean, and I think that that would call co- and that would create way more positive change than funneling money, in- money into any one exist, any, any one big new project that I come up with. Huh. That's, that's a really interesting use of the money. I mean, when I started my school in 2001, it opened on March the 17th. And on the 1st of June, we moved into a permanent training space, which cost me all of everyone's training subscriptions each month to start with. Yeah. Right. It was just, it was just, it was from a business perspective, it was an entirely stupid decision, but from a martial arts perspective, it was exactly the right thing to do. And it, it was absolutely transformative. The difference between showing up with a bag full of gear at some school sports hall or some park or whatever, and showing up and all your gear is already on the walls. And everybody knows yeah. where to come. And, you know, you don't, you're not shuffled out of it at the end of your two hour slot. Um, yeah. or, or standing outside waiting to be allowed in while the judo guys finish and put away their mats. You know, it's just, yeah, it's absolutely a completely different way of being when you have your own space. Yeah. So yeah, I, and I this think is that's the thing is, the money. Uh, and this is the thing is, is like, mm-hmm. I agree with you completely that, like, business-wise, running a martial arts space is dumb. 
Yeah. It's, <laughs> it is like, oh my God, nobody going to this business to get rich or to even have baseline economic stability. Um, but it is absolutely vital from a community and from a martial arts perspective. I think right. we really underestimate how much community growth and how much knowledge sharing and how much training happens, not in class, but in all of the times outside it. When Absolutely. people just drop in to fuck around, when people right. start taking private lessons because there's something they're interested in, when they're hanging out after class for an hour, you know, shooting the shit, that's yep. when, that's when really powerful, happens. valuable, revolutionary things happen. Yep. And you need a space to make that. Yeah. And, and from a certain perspective, the purpose of the classes is simply to get people into the space to allow that to happen. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, it's like it's like like conferences, business conferences. You know, no one actually cares yeah. about the speakers. No one actually cares about the you know the formal curriculum. You go there for that chance conversation over a glass of wine or a cup of coffee or something, which completely changes what you've been doing. Yes, the um, you know, I I I used to be an academic and mm -hmm. uh, still have a lot of a lot of friends in that field and. Every single one of us, I think, would say that the reason that we go to conferences is for the conversations that happen at midnight on Saturday after three yep. glasses of wine. Yep. That is that Absolutely. is where the magic happens, and that is that is what I want people to have in HEMA. And there are so few of us that do. There are so few of us that have a stable space. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, most of the ones that do are, are the people that need that resource the least. They're folks who have a good amount of stability, that already have a community, um, and, and maybe don't necessarily have that many new and exciting things to say. Okay. Um, you know, it's by the time you get a space, by the time you get stability, you've been in the game for long enough that you're adding value to the community, but you're not a new voice anymore. Is the and newness of the voice particularly important? I think in HEMA it is. I, I, I speak as someone um, who's been doing this since the early 90s, right? So, you know. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, and, I'm about as old as it gets. So I don't want to be completely obsolete, Kaya. Come on. I don't. Uh, Guy, I adore you, and you're not obsolete, but the first generation of, the first and second generation that I've seen of HEMA instructors mm -hmm. uh, and of people that have really managed to, to grow and build something are straight middle-class white guys. Yeah. And there is a narrowness of perspective that comes with that. Uh, and even if you are the smartest and most engaged and most thoughtful and wonderful straight middle-aged white guy in the world, there are perspectives that you lack and that are sorely needed in our community. I couldn't agree more. Uh, and, and the people that we need to hear from, the people that are going to make really valuable change, that are going to make our, our, our community richer and smarter and better, and are already doing so even mm -hmm. though they lack enorm uh, an enormous amount of the resources are the people that are probably never going to have a permanent space because they're not going to be able to afford it. Right. Because they don't have the same stability and the same advantages that a lot of the rest of us started out with. Um, sure. You know, Valkyrie... Valkyrie is, has been surviving by the skin of its teeth since we opened. We're a really marginal space. Um, 
And we've still had a lot of advantages and a lot of external support come our way. Um, and we, you know, we're run by women and we're run by queer people. Uh, and that, that has made things harder for us, but we still don't face, you know, the structural, we still don't face racism. We still don't face a lot of other structural difficulties that stop other voices from coming forward. Mm-hmm. And we're just barely scraping by. Um, sure. So I know, I know how many voices were missing because of those structural inequalities. Um, and that's, that's why my, my billion dollar plan would be throw money at the people who need it most and who okay. need to be louder and who need to, uh, need to be able to contribute to our community. And I'm not saying that, you know, uh, you know, a school run by, uh, a queer woman of color in, in a marginalized neighborhood in New York necessarily has to be doing social justice work, but it's going to bring a perspective to swordplay and to HEMA that is fundamentally different from what the loudest voices are now. And we cannot help but be enriched by that. that so fucking give her a space. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think that's an excellent point to close on. So, because um, really, you know, what what can one say after that? Um, thank you very much, Kaya. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And I wish you all the best with the new book. And thank you again for writing the old book. Um, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you so much, Guy. It's been wonderful. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my rerun of my conversation with Kaya Tansadowski. You can find the episode show notes at swordcall.com forward slash podcast where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list, and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. And just a reminder about my birthday present. You can use the code GUYTURNS49 to get £5 off any of my books at swordschool.shop or 30% off any course at courses.swordschool.com. The code will work to the end of December 2022. That's Guy Turns 49, all caps, all one word, at swordschool.shop and courses.swordschool.com. Join us next week when I will be talking to Jessica Finley. This is another rerun. This is the rerun of the first ever episode of the show. And you can probably hear from my previous interview with Kaya that I was kind of finding my feet as an interviewer and... Honestly, my technique was even worse on that very first episode because I'd never done it before. So fortunately, Jessica and I are old friends and so she lets me get away with an awful lot. So um, I hope you will enjoy it and I hope you will also notice just how much the show has improved over the last couple of years. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from and while you're there, please do rate the show and if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really helps. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you next week.